Good morning. My name is Brandon, as she said, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and uh, we are in a series through the letter, uh, the book of First Corinthians, and, and today we hit chapter 12, and we, we begin a section on 12 through 14, which is not disconnected from what came before, but it's a unique section, and so my goal today is to primarily lay a foundation that will be able to thread us through these three chapters, but to do that, got to go back and relay the foundation we laid at the beginning of the series. And so here's how we began. We began by saying that the letter of 1 Corinthians, it is not primarily a set of individual teachings, nor is it a set of teachings primarily for individuals. It is a book on community formation. And so let me unpack that just a little bit. Um, if uh, If you trace human history from the beginning of time, Uh, You roll back uh, through all of philosophy, religion, secularism, uh, all will be asking one question. There's going to be one primary question that all are asking, and it's this. What is, what is human flourishing? What is human flourishing? What's the good, the beautiful life? What is human flourishing? Now, if you read uh, from any of those camps, uh, philosophy, religion, secularism, all are going to agree on one thing. It might be the only thing that they agree upon, but they will all agree on one thing. Human flourishing requires relationships. It requires it, it require this sense of belonging to a community, the shared identity. Uh, we all know and all will agree that human flourishing does not happen in solitary confinement. This is something that we innately know that a rich, full, flourishing life, it requires relationships. It requires being woven in to other people. So when we say a book on community formation, there's a sense in which what we mean is that in the truest sense of the phrase, human flourishing is meant to happen inside the church. That the church, the community of Christ, is meant to be the place where our questions about human flourishing get answered. Because Christians believe that the way to flourishing is to learn how to live from Jesus. Jesus being the one who will take all things that are wrong and broken in the world and make them right, fix them, and heal them. But the church in Corinth, they had a problem. This was a five-year-old church. They were fairly new. They were trying, I'm, I'm sure, with all they had to follow Jesus, but the reality was that they were trying to follow Jesus while living like Corinth, which led to division setting in. And last week, Paul, the author of this letter, addressed the division at the communion table. He said, hey, when you come together, when you gather together and you come to the table, you're coming to the table divided. And they were dividing based on the lines of rich and poor. They were dividing the church into the haves and the have-nots, the esteemed and the not-so-much. This week, he is still addressing division, this time over spiritual gifts. But just like last week, he's saying, hey, listen, here's how you're divided. You've got the haves and the have-nots, the esteemed and the not-so-much. Those with more public gifts, these were the haves. Those without these public gifts, these were the have-nots. And Corinth was a city where the haves, the gifted ones, they flourished. They climbed the social ladder and they flourished. While the have-nots, they could only dream of a life where they got to flourish too. This was happening inside of the church and Paul is going to speak and address it directly. And so let's get started. Verse 1. 
Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, see the, the, the phrase spiritual gifts? That is, in my opinion, uh, an unfortunate translation. Let me tell you why. The word gifts, the, the New Testament is written in Greek, translated into English. Uh, the word gifts is not there. It's just spiritual. Literally, it's just now concerning spiritual, spiritual persons or being spiritual. They insert gifts uh, because of context and what's to come afterwards. But let me tell you why I think it's important that we don't insert what Paul didn't insert right there. and We let it stand on its own. I think it's important because our text today, the text that we are going to go through, is not fundamentally about the gifts of the Spirit. It is fundamentally about the work of the Spirit. It's more about what the Spirit does than what the Spirit gives. Now, obviously those two are related. There is one Spirit who distributes gifts, who we will define what he does in a minute. Um, But they're not the same. There's obvious overlap and obvious connection, but they are not the same. And so from the outset, Paul is defining what it means to be spiritual or to be, if I could say this way, a community of the Spirit. And if we don't understand and don't see this as Paul's foundation, we will not rightly understand our text or chapters 12 through 14. And if we don't rightly understand it, we will not rightly apply it to us as a community. So what then is the work of the Spirit? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, pagans think non-Christians, those, those who are just outside the community of faith. When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul, Paul is dipping a toe into their former religious life. Um, and he dips a toe by saying, hey, you were at one point led to mute idols. And, and a mute idol uh, was uh, if you wanted a... If you wanted success, you, you would build a wooden image, and then you would pray to the God of success, that idol, uh, and you would ask that idol for success. If you wanted sex, you would build an idol and pray to the God of sex. But this new community in Corinth, they were uh, five years old. They, they would have become more and more acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, the, uh, the part of the Bible that comes before Jesus, and they, they would have known by now uh, that the Old Testament defines humanity in one of two categories— you either worship idols or you worship the God of Israel. There's really no third category. One of, one of two categories. You worship idols or you worship the God of Israel. No third category. The point being that we all worship. It's just a matter of what you worship. And I think he's inserting this right here and he's starting like this because the church in Corinth was making an idol out of particular sets of giftings. They're worshiping the gifts over the giver. Why? Because in the city of Corinth and in the church of Corinth, public, public gifting brought status, meaning, importance. And so now, he's going to keep going deeper into their religious past as he defines the work of the Spirit. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this phrase, Jesus is accursed? What is it doing there? Um, if, if, if you read it, uh, if you were to read this sentence, you can take that out and the sentence still makes sense. I want you to understand that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Why, 
why insert this no one says Jesus is accursed by the Spirit of God? Here's what I think is going on. D.A. Carson, Corinthian citizens believed that the gods were capable of influencing their objectives against others in areas of life such as athletic competitions, matters of the heart, business, and politics. This was done in pagan worship through the use of curses against their opponents. So in Corinth, in their previous life, they would have, they would have gone to pagan worship gatherings. There were worship gatherings just like there were Christian gatherings. And in these gatherings, they would have identified their opponents and they'd have called curses on their opponents. And Paul here is contrasting Corinth worship, Corinthian worship, to Christian worship. That in Corinth, distinctions are meant to advance social rank. They're, they're meant to elevate you by humbling others, by seeing them as opponents. But inside the church, there are no opponents. There are no opponents. We come together. We humble ourselves for the exaltation of others. Why? Because inside the church, inside the global community of faith, there is one social rank that matters, and it's this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. There's one exalted person in the church, and one exalted person only. It's not you, and it's not me. It's Jesus is Lord. And here's the fundamental work of the Spirit to testify to you and to us to the Lordship of Christ. To exalt Jesus, not an individual, and therefore any practice of the gifts, any practice of the gifts of the Spirit that exalts a man and not Christ is a fundamental misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. Anything exalts an individual for what he does apart from Christ. Paul's foundation is the work of the Spirit is to testify to Christ. And so, uh, where then, how does Paul see gifts fitting into this? It's a great question. Glad you asked. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. There are a varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in every one. Now, two, two things out of this. First, First, the, the word gifts uh, in verse 4. It's the word charisma. It's, it's the word we get charismatic from. Um, and what's key there, what's important there, one, it, just, it simply means uh, something given by grace. What we see, though, is that there's not a set of charismatic gifts, that all gifts are a gift of grace, which should therefore humble us. At their root, all gifts are gifts of grace, which cultivates humility in us. Gifts of the Spirit meant to cultivate humility as gifts of grace. But second, see where it says Spirit, Lord, God in the three verses? Um, that's Paul referencing the Trinity. Christians have always believed that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul is framing gifts theologically in light of the Trinity. Why? Why would he do this? Because the Trinity, inside the triune eternal God, you see diversity in unity, perfectly harmonized. Diversity and unity, perfectly harmonized in the life of God, and he's bringing the life of God into our understanding of the gifts, that diverse, the diversity of gifts is meant to reflect the diversity of the Trinitarian God. The unity of the church is meant to reflect the unity of the Trinitarian God. Diversity and unity displayed in gifts of the Spirit, which is right out of the gate, right out of the gate, Paul is saying, listen, as there are distinct 
persons in the Godhead with distinct roles, so you in the church are distinct persons with distinct roles. Uniformity is not what God is after. He does not want a thousand people with the same particular gifting. That is not a body that does anything uh, other than look in a mirror. He, he wants diverse community of gifting that we might together be the fullness of what we're meant to be. Diversity of gifts, unity of the church are meant to be reflections of Trinitarian life lived out inside the church. And now he's going to drill into what I think is the heart of the problem in the church of Corinth, verse 7. To each is given. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. Each is given manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Gordon Fee, this is his summary of this verse. Spiritual gifts are for the building up of the community as a whole, not primarily for the benefit of the individual believer. That is not to say that in exercising gifts of the Spirit, you, you don't receive grace and are edified and conformed to Christ. It is not to say that. It is to say that the primary reason by which the Spirit distributes gifts to you and to me and to all of us is for the common good, for the good of one another. Spiritual gifts are not about primarily personal fulfillment. They're about communal fulfillment. Like this, this will collide with all um, of our modern Western individualism will say to us. Who you are, how you are wired, how you are gifted is not simply for your good. It's for our good. This, almost every commentator will agree, is Paul's thesis statement for chapters 12 through 14. What's going to thread through in Paul's thesis statement for chapters 12, 13, and 14 is this phrase, for the common good. For the common good. For the good of one another. For the common good. Why is this Paul's thesis statement? The, the logic goes like this. The, the primary work of the Spirit is to what? Testify to Christ Christ, who came, lived, and died for who? For himself? For others. The DNA of the gospel. I mean, at the heart of the life, death, resurrection of Christ is for the common good, for the good of others. And the gospel, the gospel of Christ is simply the living embodiment of the eternal heart of God. The eternal heart of God who has eternally existed as one God in three persons for the common good. Common good. It's the eternal heart of God. And so what Paul is doing is rather than simply coming in and going, hey, hey, Corinth, here's the deal. Y'all are wrecking shop over there. Like, can you not simply follow my instructions? I don't know why it's that hard. Like, I laid it out, X, Y, Z, and you're doing A, B, and C. This makes no sense to me. Stop doing that, start doing that. That is not Paul's approach. Paul's approach is to start out with what is the heart of the gospel and the heart of God plying it, applying it to spiritual gifts inside the community? And when we put on gospel lenses and we look at the spiritual gifts through, through gospel lenses, one, we will not individualize them. They are not simply for my good. They are for our good. They are primarily always about us, not about me. It's how we are gifted. It's the diversity of gifts inside a community. And second, 
When we have gospel lenses on, we don't rank people based on their gifting or perceived gifting that we exalt. But here's the reality. We do this. Like functionally, we do this. We, we functionally live like the church in Corinth. We today, I'm, I am not speaking we somewhere, but, but we, we treat public gifts as more important than private gifts. We do. We treat those giftings that are more public in the church as more important than giftings that are more private, and it's simply not true. It is simply not true. It's just not true. And, it, and the lie that says you don't really matter is also not true. However you are wired, however you are gifted, if it's from the Lord, it's for the good of the church and you matter. And you don't matter more than the person next to you and you don't matter less than the person next to you. You matter because you are here for the common good. And the person next to you, they are here for the common good. But we also... Uh, create ranks and division like this. We, we say things like, and this, I think this is unintentional and well-intended and well-meaning, but we, we say, hey, listen, um, here's a full list of gifts in the Bible. If you want this gift, if you, if you really want this one over here, here's what you need to do. You, you just need to be fully surrendered. Like if you fully surrender, if you fully surrender, this gift is available. If you don't fully surrender, then you're not going to really get it. You're not going to be able to exercise it. Yada. But, but if you surrender, it's yours. What are we doing? We're creating two categories of people, the fully surrendered and the not so surrendered. These are fundamental misunderstandings of the nature of gifts, and Paul is going to speak into those right now as he gives a list of giftings. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions them to each individually as he wills. Okay, nine gifts that he listed right here. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to define each one, but I'm not going to elaborate on any of them because I don't want us to miss Paul's point, and we will have more time to talk about a few of these in the weeks to come. And if we, if we, we need to see the forest with this, not simply the trees, in order to see what Paul is saying. So let me go through them. Utterance of wisdom. Um, utterance of wisdom. It's best to see this in light of the context of the book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, it's the declaration and explanation of Christ as the only way of salvation in a context, in a city that elevated social status based on wisdom. Utterance of uh, knowledge. Utterance of knowledge. Again, best to see this in light of the context of 1 Corinthians either the knowledge of God in Christ that comes from direct revelation or the ability to teach correctly. Faith, faith. This is not saving faith. This is the, the kind of faith that just believes God is going to move in any particular circumstance. And to be honest, it's the kind of faith that I want more and more of in my life and in our life. Gifts of healing. Jesus, Paul, and the rest of the early church um, expected healing 
inside the, the church as a foretaste and foreshadow of the resurrection that is to come. Working of miracles. This probably refers to an assortment of supernatural powers that uh, were apart from healings. Prophecy. Um, let, me, let me give you Sam Storm's definition. I'm, I'm really grateful to Sam. He's a pastor in Oklahoma City, part of our Acts 29 uh, family. And he, he says, he defines it this way, that the human, prophecy is this, the, the human report of divine revelation. But here's the challenge with prophecy, and, and to uh, quote Sam again, that prophecy is difficult to define because the New Testament never gives us a straightforward definition. So when we lack a straightforward, clear definition, it's best to then understand prophecy in light of the entire biblical narrative of the prophetic. And when we frame it like that, we, we see this, that in the Old Testament, the, the primary prophetic message was the kingdom is coming. In Jesus, the primary prophetic message was the kingdom is here. And in the church, the primary prophetic message is life in the already not yet kingdom. And then we know because uh, we're going to read it in a couple of weeks, uh, that the primary purpose of prophecy is strengthening, encouraging, and comforting the saints. Distinguishing spirits. This is generally the ability to distinguish between the work of the spirit and the demonic in your life. Tongues. Speaking in tongues could potentially refer to human languages or to ecstatic speech. Tongues and communication are inseparable. This is why Paul insists that tongues should be interpreted. Interpretation of tongues, the ability to interpret tongues into understandable human speech. Nine gifts listed by Paul. But if you want to know what a passage is about, this is, this is Bible reading 101 right here. Look for what gets repeated. If you want to, an author's point, if you want to know what he's trying to drive at, if you want to know what he's trying to go, hey, don't miss this. Here's the center lane. Don't miss this. You look for what gets repeated. So if I were to ask you, hey, what, what got repeated in our three verses, here would be the answer. The spirit, one spirit, one spirit, same spirit, same spirit, five times repeated in four verses. The point Paul is driving at here, diverse giftings from one spirit. Diverse set of giftings flowing out of one spirit. But that doesn't answer yet for us the question of why this list. Why would Paul, because this is not a full summary of gifts of the spirit in the scriptures. So why then would Paul choose this set of nine to lay out right here in chapter 12? Gordon Fee, who I've leaned on a lot for the series, says this. What distinguishes this listing is the concretely visible nature of these gifts that the nine gifts that he gave would have been all visible and public gifts inside the life of the church. That I think what Paul is doing, is he's giving a strategic rebuke in listing these sets of gifts in the church of Corinth. That in the ch church of Corinth, in the context of division, where you were elevating certain people over others, he's trying to step in and say, listen, it's one spirit that unites the church and that unity is displayed in diversity of gifts that come from that one spirit, which is why he lands the plane where he does in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are, uh, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. One body, many members. A lot of parts to play. Nobody gets to play them all. No, no one person gets to play them all. The church is marked by mutual interdependence. 
not a spiritual hierarchy. Mutual interdependence. But did you notice? She noticed in that verse it says, so it is with Christ. When you read that verse on its surface, here's what I would have expected to read. So it is, so though many are one body, so it is with the body of Christ. I would have expected so it is with the body of Christ. But you notice it says, so it is with Christ. Paul, the author of this, not long before, was a persecutor of Christians. It says he was ravaging the church. So if you have um, ever spewed hatred toward Christians, know that you're in good company. You're in company with the person who wrote the letter that we are reading right now. And in Acts 9, it says that Jesus just supernaturally showed up to Paul. And do you know what he said to Paul who was persecuting the church? Do you, do you know what he said? He said, hey, his name was Saul at the time. Hey, Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And in that phrase, we get a glimpse into how Jesus sees the church. And we get a glimpse that in the mind of Jesus, there is, in a sense, the sense of what you do to the church, you do to Christ. And so in a church dividing over gifts of the Spirit, you get this sense that, that there's this, this sense in which when you divide the church, you divide Christ. Like, Paul, what are, you, what are you doing to me? When you divide the church, you divide Christ. Christ that was divided on the cross so that dividing lines in the church could be crushed. And listen, I... I have had so many friends. Gifts of the Spirit are distributed as he wills, verse 11. As he wills, not as you surrender. Not if you are surrendered enough, you get this gift. I've had so many friends who just so longed for and wanted these particular giftings over here, never received them, and we're left going, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my faith? Am I not enough? Do I even really believe? Am I actually a child of God? Maybe I didn't study enough, and that's why I'm not getting that gift. Listen, you might need to surrender your life to Christ more. You might need to study more. These things might be true. They just have nothing to do with a conversation around giftings. And to see the bride of Christ dividing over gifts, gifts that are meant to lead us deeper into Christ, deeper into his lordship, deeper into a oneness, an experience of life in the Trinitarian God. To see the church go, hey, there's this category over here, people who, you know, don't really believe in all the gifts, to this group in the middle, to these over here who, you know, all the gifts... Like to see the church divided over gifts that are meant to unite the church, can you imagine how that breaks the heart of God? Like, can you fathom? Like, of course, we all want to wrestle with the Bible and live into the fullness of Christ, but can you imagine what the, what the Lord might feel like, must feel like when somebody says, no, 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 I don't want to be part of that community because they're too charismatic or not charismatic enough. to take the gifts of the Spirit that are meant to be for the common good and to divide over them 
breaks the heart of God. Breaks the heart of God. Got a lot of pent up seminary frustration I'm letting out right now. Actually, I don't. I've got a lot of friends who have been damaged by that, and I don't want you to walk through it either. Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Jews, Greeks, slave and free. Those were the ethnic and economic dividing lines of the day. And she's saying, listen, when you are baptized into the one body, the one body who Christ was divided for, dividing lines get crushed down. One spirit, one baptism, one church, no dividing lines, not ethnic, not economic, and certainly not gifting. Certainly not the exalted ones and the not so exalted ones. The important and the not important. But this, this, this language of all to drink of the one spirit. This is experiential language and this is communal language. And when you scan the New Testament, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see that there is an undeniable power in the people of God when the spirit of God is present among them. But that power, which is both experiential and communal, is not put on display through a particular gifting of a few. It's put on display when the community And the community sees all that we have as for the common good. It's put on display when the church is united in her diversity. It's on display when the church is a community where all flourish. It's on display when members see what they have, all that they have, including the gifts that God has granted to them as for the common good, as for the good of others. It's on display when the community really believes, I mean really believes, what chapter 13 has to say that there is still yet a more excellent way, and it's love. Love, why? Because if love is the driver, all that I have is for the good of those that I love. All that I have is for the good of those that I love. It is on display when the church has one hero, one Lord. When Jesus is exalted, everyone else is humbled. And when everyone else is humbled, everyone can flourish. Everyone can flourish, and the church can be the community where all our questions around human flourishing get answered. That's what's on the table for us. That's what's on the table in chapters 12 through 14. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the diversity of giftings that have been granted through the Spirit to our community. It is a beautiful, sweet gift of grace to look around the room and see the diversity of men and women in this room and to know that some are more public, some are more private, and we are one body, one body in need of one another. Would you unite us together? In a few weeks when we finish these chapters on 12 through 14, these sections of the Bible for the For just the last hundred years, so many have divided over. Would we be more united in who we are than we are right now? Would we see gifts rightly? Rightly. Unity displayed in our diversity. For the common good. Not for my own exaltation, but for the building up of others. Oh Lord, get our eyes off ourselves. Get them on to our brothers and our sisters. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.